Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. Why have we started at night? This is a disaster. I know, this is a, a nighttime podcast. And we haven't seen time. each other in so long, so Since we just December. had a chat and talk yeah. and gossip and talk and I love your nail polish. It's Thank really you. cute. I went with like blood. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I I'm, blood I'm red. pinky pink. I was feeling dark. I think, you know, we, you, when you feel dark, I was feeling you feel dark. dark. I wanted to feel blood. Yeah. It's dark. It's been raining here. So feeling yeah. a little spooky. Yeah. You know. But it took us only two and a half hours to get to the podcast we chairs. Eat. You know. Yeah. I had been a sick. hot pot. So you I excuse, sick. I excuse if you can hear my nasaliness. So it's because I'm still a little congested. What do you think you had? I don't think it was COVID because we took like actual tests, like actual PCR, and yeah. they were all negative. And then they so were I think negative. it was just, a, or like, I don't know, like a bad cold, or mm -hmm. I haven't had a cold in like three years. How many times have you gotten COVID? Zero. Zero? Yeah. Zero? You never tested positive? I've never tested positive oh that I know of. gracious. And like, I guess, like, I guess we could have had it and like not known, but. But we sat next to on our plane back to LA from home for the holidays. We sat next to this child. We like mm. upgraded seats, so it was kind of nice because we were the first row of economy. So mm -hmm. we had like the bulkhead or whatever, but that's also where they put the people with children. Mm -hmm. So we sat next to this couple that had this child that was literally dying. Oh my god! And like no mask, like the kid was just hacking, and I was like, if we don't get something from this child, right? And of course, we got what it was, and I guess it was just a cold or something. No, you got RSV probably. Probably RSV, yeah. yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But like, and it was pretty like. That's why I thought always I was like it feels not like a cold. So like for oh, some time I was like maybe it is COVID, but then like we kept testing negative and we took like real tests, not just over like and rapid. Your chest felt tight. My, but I had like chills. Mm -hmm. I had like a very low grade fever. Or you could have just had the flu. And I said the flu because like that's also what it was. But Jeff, Jeff got sick first mm -hmm. or showed started showing symptoms first. And then I was like, ha like I got out, I didn't get it, blah, blah, blah. And then of course, like two days later, I started yeah, showing symptoms yeah, yeah. and it was like way worse than what he had. Yeah. So I don't know what it was. It could have, yeah, any of the above. Um, but Kylie was great and she went in big sister mode and brought us like over little care packages and she Aww. got me smoothies one day for vitamin C and she was very sweet and took care of me. That's so so I bought her a hair mask, Essex. <laughs> <laughs> But she was very cute, and but yeah, it's, it, you know, for a couple of days it was like, okay, I feel like actually bad. Mm -hmm. But then it's like you get to the point where you're like, I feel crummy, but then I feel guilty for not doing work because I don't feel like that sick. And you're in that like dilemma about being like, I don't feel like sick enough to like lay in bed, but I don't feel like great enough to like stare at a computer screen because I still have like a headache and like felt gross and. But, I haven't. I I shouldn't even say know, anything. I don't want to even yeah, say anything. But sick. I haven't felt sick in, like that in a long time. But it was just annoying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, and I feel better. I'm still like a little congested, but overall I feel like a lot better. I just slept a lot, which I figured is what my body needed in the moment. We all need to rest more. Yep, exactly. Yeah, rest as, rest as resistance or whatever mm -hmm. the thing going around is. I like it. 
What okay, are we so, talking about today? So we have our January Patreon. Love it. Patron questions. And we yeah. have a really cool a swath of questions here. A swath. Um, swath. An agricultural swath, swath that we cut with the scythe. And I am not prepared at all, yeah. as usual. I so, like some of read these, but not like fully. So there'll be a, a little bit of a surprise for both of us. But, um, <laughs> you know, I did this a couple days ago. And yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if we have any other news we want to announce before we get started. Well, we renamed the Substack. Yes. So we have to talk about that. Yeah. So we renamed the Substack to Ancient slash Now. <laughs> um, Which is our way of showing that the ancient is connected to the present. Yes. And relevant. And we went back and forth on names, didn't we? We discussed names. We discussed... Because we thought the Substack was gaining its own popularity mm -hmm. separate from the podcast. Mm -hmm. And when we originally started the Substack, it was in response to like... Oh, what are we talking in the podcast and like continuing that conversation further in the Substack? But right. it was gaining its own, you know, readership and all this stuff separate from the podcast. Like, I don't know if how much crossover we have. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to make it its own separate entity mm -hmm. and really address what we actually ended up talking about more with the news stories, which ended up being, you know, these news stories that we find each week and their relevancy to you know, more modern stuff or what are scholars of the ancient yeah, world you know, finding, new discoveries, how is it coming unquote. into the press? How do we perceive mm -hmm. it and interpret it? Ongoing debates. Yeah. Um, you know, looking into these stories, like these clickbaity stories and yeah. like what the nuance behind them is yeah. and like having discussions like that. So the, the Substack changed a little bit in, um, its direction. So we wanted that to be reflected in the, the title. Yeah. And I think, now it's, you know, I think, and I think before, after Lives After Party, you maybe didn't know it was about ancient history or things like this. And I right. think now it reflects that it's a right. ancient history focused um, substack. So if you don't find it through the podcast, you would still know, you know, what it was about. And, and the in our substack, we really do hit most of the topics of antiquity that are coming up in the news. Yeah, it's that not could just be, ancient Egypt. It's no, everything. Like the Netflix show Netflix that's show. so focused on Graham Hancock and, uh, and Atlantis. Jeff went to get his hair cut at the barber and they and all were talking about it. And yeah. it's like, I literally sat there for the whole time I was getting my hair cut, telling this guy at the barber, like one yeah. of the barbers, like telling him why like the Graham Hancock guy is wrong and how it's like super racist and all this stuff. He's like, the whole time I was there, they were just like, well, what about this? And Jeff was like, like, I literally, he's like, if you want me to, like, I'll come and, like, we can chat and, like, I'll dispel, like, all this stuff for you. And the, by the time, all the barbershop guys were like, oh, okay, okay, okay. But he was like, that's all they wanted to talk about. It's amazing how, how we, we say that we're not going to fund humanities. <clears throat> we don't need to learn about history. Mm -hmm. We live in the modern day. It doesn't really matter. And then when something like that Graham Hancock, Hancock piece of shit comes out on Netflix and it takes everyone over. Yeah. And and then people get super defensive. and They're like, what do you mean? Of course, you know, aliens could have built the pyramids. And you're like, OK, let's talk about that. Talk mm -hmm. about evidence. Talk about what it means that you say that. These are very topical subjects and very important yeah. to our nationalism, to our oh, identities. Yeah to how we understand our modern uh, superiority over the ancient mm -hmm. world or not. And it's just really, really interesting. Yeah. It's all important. Yeah, so we go into, you know, all those things. I think our, our recent article, like last week's Substack, looked at um, some evidence, some what was evidence for um, early hominids in the Americas has now been argued that it was actually monkeys um, using tools. So mm -hmm. like things like this, which I mean, you could argue that that's wrong and stuff. So this is obviously still an ongoing debate, but um, 
you know, so looking at like, why does that matter mm -hmm. that this evidence is being re-examined in this way? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean? For, have humans been here for 25,000 yeah, years or, or have they been here for 14? 14, yeah. 14, 13, what how do we? What does it mean yeah. and how does that, and like it gets built into all these indigenous arguments and um, And we keep it pretty pithy. Yeah, pretty short and sweet. Yeah, so we do like a little summary and like our, our opinions about each and, you know, a brief little thing. And then, you know, you can link to the article and read it fully if you would like. But um, it's our kind of like brief little summary, brief little thoughts, similar to like what you used to do when you posted more on Facebook. Mm -hmm. You would post an article with, your, you know, a brief thought or two. But it's a and, lovely safe space without mm -hmm. the 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 no tech trolls. bro white supremacy bullshit that you'd have to deal with yeah. on Facebook. So it's it's really nice. And more I think we have space to we all three contribute, so we have space to yeah. all get our opinions in there and and um so it's you know just not like a sentence here on fa like a Facebook status or yeah. something. It's a little bit more um thought about and you know cultivated. So and if, if and when I finish the Coffins book, <laughs> yeah. I'll be able to put do in a some... spoiler or something, some excerpts from your book. Exactly. That'd like put in more mm -hmm. information about what I'm working on, yeah. let people know what's going on, put a little more long like form stuff out there. Like how you examine a coffin. Yeah. 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 Like I, I, I look forward to that. Yeah. yeah. You can put, post images and stuff. It'd be yeah. easy. Yeah. But yeah, so check out the Substack if you haven't yet. We'll and if you don't know what Substack is, and you're like, mm -hmm. what the hell is Substack? Put in Substack Karakuni, and it's there. It'll just show up. It's so if you know like my name, blog, then you've got site. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ancient Now Karakuni Substack, um, and there's, I like, I love Substack. We have a yeah. lot of our favorites that we recommend, so you can see those there as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like a cool blog posting site, but really user friendly, and you can there's apps and all that stuff. So right. good. Good, good. Um, okay, so I think that's all of our housekeeping. Yeah. Um, so we can get into our January patron questions. <clears throat> hey, patrons. Hello, patrons. Um, thank you for bearing with us. Some of these questions are actually from last month that we didn't get to when we did our little tut extravaganza mm -hmm. and other things. So some of them are questions from the tut one. So if you haven't listened to the November patron um, questions. You should go listen to that one because some of them are in response to our answers from that. So we have a little dialogue going on. Um, but that's a little bit later. And that um, was live. And that was live, yeah. Yeah. Where we talked about all the King Tut stuff because it was the centennial. So if you're not a patron and you want to ask questions live mm -hmm. and have a conversation, get on it. Yes, and we're going to be doing another live event at the end of February probably for the okay. quarter. So we'll, once we get that scheduled, we'll send out a reminder to everyone so you can all come in with your questions and we'll of course record it and all that. Um, but so we can have some, uh, one of our live events for our patrons. Okay, so Paul asks, um, do we have any idea what Egyptian music actually, actually sounded like? We have relics of instruments and images of performers, and I'm sure modern performers can reproduce the sounds from re replica instruments, but was there any record of musical notation or Coptic music, for example, which can be reasonably traced back to ancient sources? I expect the answer is no, but please enlighten. Yeah, I mean, there's no music written down. There's no notation. There's like no you have notation. With, like, I think with Greek stuff, ancient Greek, we have actual musical notation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, not for Egypt. We have obviously depictions of musicians, harpists, mm -hmm. flutists, and stuff. And we have actual instruments. Like yeah. the, the the coolest thing. As soon as I read this question, I think of Tut's 
um, like silver trumpets yeah. that they played in like the early 1900s. Yeah. And if you Google it, and cracked I, as I they played it live on BBC. Yes, it's BBC. So if you Google BBC Tut's trumpets or whatever, you can hear them blow through actually Tut's trumpets. And yet, and hear what they sounded like. And yet, those trumpets are almost certainly meant to marshal forces in a military battlefield. So, yeah, is like, it music? Know, actually, been silver. Do you have also? drums? You have trumpets. I mean, the music is associated with military worlds, associated with parties and festivals mm -hmm. and and temple activities. But it, it, there's many different kinds we of don't music. Know, like, the tempo they would have preferred. No. And... You and know. there would have been many different tempos, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So there's a call to arms. There's a, a trumpet blast that pulls people to you. And then know, you know there's a yeah. charge or some sort of moment that's meant to come. And then there's the... What's usually shown in the tombs... And help me with the with the musicians. You get a harpist. Harpist, the blind harpist. You have a lout. A or, yeah. Or it's like a guitar-y kind yeah, of Yeah, like a thing. lute thing. Yeah, yeah. lute, lout, lute. Yeah. yeah. And and then there's that flutey thing. It's like yeah. a double flute. It's a double flute. And what else? What other instruments are there? Those are generally... You know, like a, a drum. They don't show drums in the tombs you have the quite as much. Clappers, yes. Um, sustrums, I guess you could count as an instrument. Yeah. Singing. But you, I haven't seen drums in tombs that much. If anyone can correct me, please They're get out there. They're not as present as you think there would be. And if you don't see drums in tombs as much, I would love to know why. Mm -hmm. as, particularly for my son, who is a drummer. Mm -hmm. It's a weird thing that you don't see drumming. Like such a key, like keeping the bass, like bass beat yeah and when i've been in like i remember when i was in sri lanka in the temple of the tooth and candy mm -hmm. and the drums would start and it was oh and it was like it was meant to to start the ritual mm -hmm. and the drums are like a beat that helps everyone know what's going to start and how and when so drums are very much a part well, of and like when we were striking like the one noise that like really helped keep us when we were on strike was like the drum beat yeah you know and i saw jeff with his yeah. drums out yeah. there drums are important mm -hmm. they help you keep the tempo they keep everyone together the loudest noise you can hear the farthest away yeah you know. And I don't see them depicted in the yeah, tomb scenes. Yeah, interesting, actually. I see the harpist, I see the mm -hmm. loudest, I see the, the other I things. I feel like maybe those denote an intimate... Did abode? you see that yeah, giant right spider? Oh Where God, the right fuck there, is right it? There. Where? Holy it's fuck. Right ah, okay. So before the spider landed on me, we were talking about <clears throat> drums and why drumming is you not depicted well, in Egyptian tombs. That perhaps it's because everything else is supposed to... Denote a more, but perhaps like drumming to me connotes like a distance or something like this. So maybe like you know a small like a blind harpist is supposed to be at like your intimate, you know, yeah. intimate setting that only like a select few people can hear. Drumming works and... people up. Drumming yeah. gets a whole lot it's of frenzied. people together. Yeah, it's frenzied, and they don't put that in the tombs for a, a reason, want... perhaps. Yeah, mm -hmm. maybe. So anyway, we have to um, look up. Yeah, like wonder what the word for drum is then. And you don't see it, like, when you think of the temple depictions, what kinds of music do you see depicted? Sistra, you point out. The Sistra, Sistrum is there. You know, the clappers. But not that often. The hands. Not in a temple. Yeah. Like, maybe in a festival scene, like, like something to Dira Bahri with Hatshepsut, and they're, and they're, like, moving in procession. But that's not an inside-the-temple scene. You... That's a festival assume music if you see people dancing 
Yes, but again, so because we usually have that's more a festival. evidence of dancers, like all the henner troops of certain gods are usually the, you know, like the super common title, like the chantress of Amun. Right. Chanting. Okay, so denotes music. Who, who asked this question? Uh, Paul. Dear Paul, I shall look at the Temple of Khonsu at Karnak and see. Because there are mm -hmm. chantresses of Amun and other troops, dancing yeah. troops depicted. And I'll see if there's anybody uh, depicted there. But y you were working with sight. But really, yeah, working we with don't have sight. any evidence of how they would have taken those instruments together. Right. What beats they would have used. Mm -hmm. What kind of, yeah, you know, sounds they would have liked. You know, when you hear like Middle Eastern, ancient Egyptian music today, it's like a very actually modern you know yes and no but you're only working with so many instruments so yes you can only have so many sounds and paul also also asks what about coptic music yes. but we're talking about the music of the church and that would be like me using the the hymns and chants of the early catholic church to reconstruct festival music that ancient egyptians or ancient sorry ancient romans would have People, played yeah. at a particular time because church chant music is meant to clear a space mm -hmm. it's meant to create a certain meditative uh, space yeah. in one's Drawing. mind right and and that's not necessarily what we're asking about so i mean i guess in short thinking of all of the music that's available on this globe the ancient egyptians would have had access to much of that same variety yeah no, but, we can know the instruments, but we can't know how they would have used them together right. and the beats and rhythms and stuff they would have chosen to work with. But listening to Coptic music, I think, is a good start. And listening to Upper Egyptian yeah, like folk music is another good way to go. North African, yeah, probably. I agree. I agree. So go close. anthropological on this. And I think that there is less... Um, what, what, what's the old saying that the old kingdom was farther from Cleopatra mm -hmm. than we are from Cleopatra? Yep. And thus, I would say that if you use the anthropology of the, of the world and listen to the folk music that's out there in North Africa, mm -hmm. Northeast Africa, you'll find the music of ancient yeah, Egypt. That's it's probably still there. as close as we can get. Yes, it's still there. It's still there. So don't lose hope. There is nothing lost. But there are a lot of instruments, like ancient instruments that are preserved. So mm -hmm. you can find those. And that's mm -hmm. cool just to see you know, what they were working with and the yeah. sounds that those instruments make. And then you can, in your head, reconstruct maybe yeah. rhythms and things. I'm still thinking of the dead spider. I know. You too? R.I.P. It's juicy. It is juicy. Oh, God. Oh, okay. Our next question <laughs> from Far Pointer. Far Pointer? Like What's a dog? There? That's far their... away, like a pointer dog? I don't know. It's their handle. Okay. Are there areas of research in Egyptology that are not being addressed that you would love to see someone tackle? Writings to be translated and published, question mark, topics that are fascinating or useful to the field that need love, maybe because of politics or access or simply a lack of fully trained or funded Egyptologists. Oh my God, so Ugh. many, so many, this is huge, huge. I mean, I can start with something, but you start first. Well, so thinking about like, working in Egypt, I don't know if this is maybe a little too touchy to talk about, but being a foreigner working in Egypt, we can't take uh, samples out. Yeah. Um, so that restricts a lot of the type of analyses that we're able to do. Um, and you have to do them in Egypt. And, you know, sometimes the analysis you want to do isn't is impossible there. These things are really expensive and require, you know, maybe something really up to date that only like one university in the world has or something like this. So like just 
doing more, you know, complex radiocarbon dating to get chronologies more tight. Um, you know, you could say even like DNA analyses of, of bodies, um, you know, strontium analysis of people's teeth and seeing where they're growing up and yeah. of, of, of also of animals and stuff like this. There's so many like other analyses, um, pottery, you know, analyzing what's going on in, in what's, was, what was in a pot, um, yeah. for example. Residue um, analysis. Residue analysis, things like this. That would be really cool. Um, themes that people haven't worked on. I mean, there's so many sites where you're like, oh, there has to be something there that like no one's dug, you know, like, like Memphis. It's like, is if someone did like a really full systematic excavation of Memphis would be cool to see. Certain sites that like I wish had more funding, like Hierocompolis, I wish had more funding. I feel like there's a lot there still to be uncovered. I mean, my God, all of these things are true. And what I will say is that when you're dealing with such an embarrassment of riches, yeah. material preservation that Egypt has to offer, there's so much to work with. There's so much material oh, yeah. culture and there's so much more to find out. And what I always train my students to do and what I'm always interested in. I mean, you mentioned things that we mm -hmm. cannot do and we yeah. cannot see data. We cannot take mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Um, whether you're working in Egypt or another part of the world. And so I'm always looking very pragmatically into what we can do yeah. and what we can do maybe even from our homes mm -hmm. without access in the place or with a quick trip, a trip of 12 days or six days or whatever it is where you can go in, get out, take your data and then work with it mm -hmm. in the space of your home. And I think that there's a lot that can be done with photogrammetry, mm -hmm. with, with, with objects, reliefs, pieces in situ, and the kinds of things that I think are politically, and this is really interesting for me, most considered problematic in the academy would be looking at the association of temples with certain stellar movements, mm -hmm. certain solar movements, mm -hmm. and certain lunar movements. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that people, I just got a book, I just ordered a book, uh, it's called um, um, Geographie des Himmels, mm -hmm. so the geography of the heavens, mm -hmm. and it's a three volume vo uh, book about a three volume work on all of the star charts and oh, different cool. temples and tombs from no, like Senemuts and stuff or something. It's, it doesn't yeah. go that early. Oh, okay. It's mostly Greco-Roman. Oh, okay. And so it's pretty late. Cool. And it's funny how things are considered appropriate for a certain period mm -hmm. of time. Like so oh, the Greeks could do it. Yes. Yeah. So if you're talking about Dendra mm -hmm. or you're talking about Komombo, then you can talk about star charts and no one's going to roll their eyes, give you side eye and go, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Instead, if you were looking at, as you say, Senemut or Let's say you go to Karnak Temple and you say, when is the sun going to be between the pylons? Stuff, yeah. When is the sun going to hit that relief? Or those tombs down in Aswan that they've mm -hmm. just found, actually, the solstice lines up with. What, and what does that yeah, mean? And what, what might the interest be? Or even Abu Simbel, which has, of course, been moved. Why does it hit in those three statues on the right mm -hmm. two times a year? And what's that about? And I think those kinds of things have been very much pushed out of our discussions because they're seen as Graham Hancocky. Yeah. They're seen as something that 
is way pseudo-archaeological and thus we should not touch when in fact I would argue that there's a lot there to be done. <clears throat> and if you're in the academy and you touch that third rail, you have a better shot. If you're outside of the academy, you're trying to get mm -hmm. something done, it's, it's probably going to be more difficult for you. So those kinds of things in terms of religious architectural studies are, are really interesting mm -hmm. to me. Um, why do you put a tomb at, at Drabul Naga? Why do you put a particular tomb yeah, yeah. at Sheikh Abdel Gorna with that alignment? Mm -hmm. Those, those mm -hmm. are really mm -hmm. interesting questions. Yep. And so, um, but then otherwise, I think too, like, yeah, go ahead. Stuff that like, I just want to know what's like in basements of museums yeah. that like, you know, has been locked away for however long that people have forgotten about or haven't seen them forever and you always whenever you go to a museum like museum curators are always like oh yeah there's this thing like they know so much more exists yeah you know but they can't put everything on display so just having more things come out um on display from all the museums and just seeing what else is out there and there's always little things hidden and colonialism has yes. taken so many objects that we need to fully embed, re-embed within their context mm -hmm. if possible and try to understand what's going on. And, and then I would add that sometimes it might be right in front of your face and right in terms of the, it might be right there in terms of the relevance of what the world is going through now. Yeah. And people are unwilling to touch it because it is such a third rail dealing with current too politics of nationalism, power, yeah. etc. And I'm dealing with such a volume right now. Mm -hmm. And I've invited a number of different scholars to present on art history of Pharaonic Egypt. And people are like, no, we can't talk about and power, mm -hmm. power and the art history of Pharaonic Egypt. They're like, how can we talk about power? What do you mean? Because it's so hot mm. in terms of our late capitalist, hopefully late patriarchal world, <laughs> that people don't want to speak openly about how art, how beauty is used to maintain power. Mm -hmm. And that's, nothing could be more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm going to scurry in the next couple of years. And um, your work is doing the same. Mm -hmm. Your work is about body adornment and how people make themselves beautiful and how it makes yeah. you powerful. Yep. So people have talked, like, seriously, Jordan, when they talk about garments and costuming, yeah. they're like, this is what you wore in the old kingdom. This yeah. is where you in the middle kingdom. This is a new they kingdom. They don't nuance it at all. They don't nuance it. They don't talk about the Kim Kardashian of it, mm -hmm. which is what's interesting, right? And, and and it's in that, like, mundanity. Mm -hmm. And then people off, you know, just write it off so easily because they're like, oh, it's clothes and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's it means... I mean, you can see it now today that it means so much more than just clothes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, back then it obviously was the same and just to. But it's beneath our notice if it's Kim Kardashian going on Instagram and showing her well-sculpted body and clothing. <clears throat> and this is now beneath our notice yeah. and not intellectual. Yeah. When you can intellectualize the shit mm -hmm. out of that and apply all kinds of anthropological theory. It's what... Why, why would we not? And Helen Peterson's substack is. Yes, it is. She's like, I'm looking into all the things. That I'm looking at all... Britney Spears yep. and I'm applying anthropological theory and I'm bringing it. Yep. Yeah. She's like, I'm interested in all the things that everyone says shouldn't be interesting and yeah. it's, you know, stupid. It's a really good substack. Yeah. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. But exactly. So yeah, so 
and maybe uh, oh, yeah, so, so some sites, yeah, sites that should be dug, technologies that should be applied, things like that. But nothing what? like nothing like egregious. No, like, like, I, like secret, like, like, ah, like there's this thing that no, no it's translated. And... Chambers underneath the Sphinx, people have talked about them, they've published them. This yeah. isn't like, oh, there's a chamber under there's the Sphinx, you don't like... know about it. Or the Osirion on the Giza Plateau. So cool. This Ugh. weird shaft that goes down into the groundwater, and they've created this such a cool this analogy tomb for Osiris. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. That has not been not well published. Talked about. It's only a Zahi Hawass article in mm -hmm. a Feshrift for is it O'Connor's Feshrift? Yeah. I, I remember think this so. came up in class. And we had to yeah, find it, yeah, and we had to look and everything. Somebody can help mm -hmm. us figure out where it is. But you know, that kind of thing is amazing. And why there's not more work on it. I, I will say a lot of the things that need more work, it's about exclusionary access. Yeah. And that there is now great competition for who publishes what, who gets access to something. Mm -hmm. And those people who do have access have too much to do and cannot publish things fast enough. Yeah. And that's why. And I don't know who else is listening Publishing out there. Publishing just takes... Publishing so takes a shit time. ton of time. Yeah. And for anybody who's out there listening, who's like holding on to something with their with their two hands say, no, this is mine. And you already have enough that's published. Yeah. Let it go. It Publish it with else. someone else. Yeah. You know, share it. Share the wealth. Exactly. It's not going to hurt you. And it will actually help grow what you do. And I don't understand mm -hmm. why more people can't do that. Yep. Drives me crazy. Yep. Don't hoard things. Don't hoard. Hoard is, hoarding is no. bad. And hoarding intellectual property is also very bad. Mm -hmm. And I, Jordan and I can't tell you how many times we're like, oh, I want to study this. And you go to the museum and question. Like, sorry, so-and-so has rights on it for the next 10 years. Yeah, and you're, they're like, oh, they're publishing it now. And you're like, but when? When will they publish it? And then you'll have moved on to something yeah. else by the time like, oh, they get so -and -so's. to it. that's so-and-so's. I'm like, what? Yeah. How, how do people own these things? Yeah. It's such a patriarchal way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And... When people like, okay, ask you write your article, and yeah. I'll write my article. We can have two articles. Let's about all it. share our, like, our digital access, our photographs, and this goes for museums too. So, you people who are curators at museums, we love you. We know that you don't have control over the corporate place in which you work, but the more we can push back mm -hmm. and tell people that this intellectual share. property needs to be owned by everybody, the better our research would be, and the more everything can be on fucking Wikipedia. Yep the better it would be. Yeah. So open source. I was just talking with, with uh, Stefania Mainieri and we're like, oh my God, we need to do this Coffins database and how wonderful would it mm -hmm. be if every museum agreed, let's just put them on goddamn Wikipedia, all on Wikipedia and everyone just publishes as they can. So that means that in Budapest, they have some coffins, they put them up on Wikipedia yeah. with the names and the, and the numbers and everything. They put all of their data on. Somebody's doing a dissertation and a particular aspect can add to yeah. that as an editor, and we, it'll build so fast. Yep. But because museums won't allow these things to be open access, they won't yeah. do it. And it's super frustrating. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is just about ideas of ownership and, and stupid patriarchal hoarding. And, and, and then the other stuff is, you know, embarrassment about things being considered pseudo-archaeology. And don't get me wrong, I've been told off as a pseudo-archaeologist on social media too many times mm -hmm. for being open-minded about how the pyramids were built or mm -hmm. whatever. And people who have their minds made up already will be like, oh, she's a pseudo-archaeologist. And that's a hard... For me, it's fine because I'm a professor at UCLA. Fuck yeah. you all. But <laughs> it's a but it's a hard moniker to shake off for somebody mm -hmm. who's up and coming. Yeah. And that you can be very damaging. Like, do go too far. 
and ruin yeah. it before you're there. So if you're looking at summer solstices in Karnak Temple, people might give you side eye and paint you with a particular brush of like pseudo archaeology. Like, pagan. Yeah, it, it can be problematic. Yeah. So there is so much out there about the ancient world that we have yet to learn. And I, I think just the more creative you can be and open-minded mm -hmm. without including the stupid alien, racist, yeah. white supremacist shit, go for it. Yeah, no... Uh early races of man yeah yeah speaking of aliens the next question <laughs> comes from martian spacer oh no so i'll ask a question or two sometimes the gods amun and ra are different mm -hmm. with ra being a solar deity and sometimes they're single syncretized amun ra was there a point in time when the two gods were combined into a single entity and why did that happen Please, Jordan, tell me you looked up when the first syncretism happened. No. Fuck. I don't um, know. I think it's Would 12th it Dynasty. Amber, get on your computer you right now. It wouldn't have been earlier? I don't think so. You think not until Theban? I think 11th, 12th. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's 11th, 12th. Not until like Mentohotep or something. Okay, so I'll start <clears> and then we can edit as we need. But what's the name of this person? Martian Spacer. Martian Spacer. I will answer that... Amun means that which is hidden, or the one who is hidden. And where is Amun sacred to? Amun is sacred to the ancient or, town of Thebes, yeah, modern-day Luxor. And, and Ra. Ra is sacred to arguably Heliopolis. Heliopolis, but solar but deity. Solar deity is Egyptian. It's just Northeast Africa. It is the sun. And Ra is super popular in the fifth dynasty. And Ra can just mean the sun. For example, yeah. Akhenaten used the word Ra. Yeah. And many of his acolytes and followers renamed themselves and used the element Ra. And there was no competition to, to the Aten. The God. Yeah, so it just means the sun. Yes, Amber? <laughs> you stood. Um, so our quick search revealed yes. that it might not be until the early or late 17th, early 18th dynasty. When you get the syncretism between Amun, Amun and Ra, Ra. When Ra becomes a more national deity. Yeah. Which means that appending Ra nationalizes something mm -hmm. because the sun hits everywhere in Northeast yes. Africa. And Ra is always, mm -hmm. you know, a solar deity, king of the gods in a sense. And... And it's a great syncretism. I mean, think about it. You're taking that which cannot be seen, the, that which is the hidden, hidden one. the almond, and you are syncretizing it with that which is seen everywhere and warming mm -hmm. every bit of flesh yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. So it's, it's taking um, two very dissimilar things and putting them together and making a god that is a nationalist god, a superhuman god, a god who can be called king of the mm -hmm. gods because of it. And it's a very Egyptian thing, the syncretism between the gods of so-and-so, you know, Hathor like Sekhmet, mm -hmm. Amun, you know, in this guise of Ra or, you know, other gods. So when we think of maybe polytheistic gods, we keep them very separate in their own categories like Zeus and Hera and all this stuff. But for the Egyptians, they were it was much more fluid and overlapping and these entities weren't um you know concrete and individualized um, i totally agree with you and yet at the same time i'm gonna push back and hmm. say that the egyptians were just like everybody else in that when they solarize yeah it's nationalism so when you hear of the sun king yeah like louis 14 yeah he is nationalizing France in a way that had not been nationalized before. Okay. 
and pushing back against all of his elites, mm-hmm. pulling them into Versailles and saying, you come to me on your knees, mm-hmm. metaphorically. Yeah. But he is the Sun King. And when you look at China or Japan, and you see when the sun is brought in in connection to the ruler Mm -hmm. or the divine ruler, it is generally in a nationalistic sense of the sun is touching us Mm -hmm. and this is our power. Yeah, it's about everywhere the sun is type of thing. Yeah, it's about patriarchal bromance power. I have gold, I have military, I have ideology. It's all here all Mm -hmm. together. And so, when you take something that is hidden and secret and mysterious, yeah. the Theban thing of Amun, yeah. and you link it with the sun god that everyone sees and everyone knows and you're marching your thousand armies, then it becomes something that is meant to be visible in your face, I'm gonna fuck you up <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. military force. And I would argue that that's what solarism is, connected with gold, connected yeah. with money, connected with hoarding. And, and that Amun's brought in because of the Theban association of the 17th and early 18th dynasty. Yeah, which is the high point of Egyptian pharaonic power, mm-hmm. arguably. Mm-hmm. And even though the Ramesids are like, oh, we would never be by, like those 18th dynasty over the top religious zealots. Yeah like Amenhotep III and Akhenaten, mm-hmm. and we push back vehemently, yeah. they take that Amun-Ra and they run with it mm-hmm. because it works for them. It links... So why mess with it? Why mess with it? Because Amun and Ra together create a... It also links north and south. It links north and south, Heliopolis and Thebes, and together they create this, this syncretism that is literally kingship over all divinity. Mm-hmm in a masculine guise. And it that masculinity, that that solarism. Amun creator, deity, but the sun also being a source of life and rejuvenation. Well, and, and Jordan, when you think of the king, what's one of his titles? Son of Ra. Exactly. Yeah. So if you have Amun-Ra. I was like, which one? <laughs> there's so many, there's so many, but not one of, not an obscure one, like mm-hmm. the Golden Horus yeah, or whatever. Zara. But Sa-Ra, he's the, he's the son of the sun god. Mm-hmm. And Horus is still there up in the, Horus you know, Horus. he's there in the solar beams. Mm-hmm. So it's all that that light touches. It, how many times, sun. how many languages, how many, how many different national expressions, everywhere the sun touches, yeah. we oh, rule, yeah. right? And so, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's this idea of absolute power and mm-hmm. it's a bullshit ideology, but well, this it's still too, it's, what, it's you know. everywhere the sun touches. So mm-hmm. during the daytime, but mm-hmm. then it's also almond in the darkness. Yes. So it covers both nighttime and daytime when, when Ra's not up and he's in the underworld going through his trials and tribulations, you are then also almond. The hidden one. I love that. And so you have to throw so Akhenaten. All your bases. <laughs> you have to throw Akhenaten into this because mm-hmm. Amun Re is an Amenhotep the third touchstone mm-hmm. where he's like, I am night, I am day, I am everything, I am the god king, I own all the riches. And he kind of did. Yeah. He was that badass. Yeah. And then Akhenaten comes along, changes his name from Amenhotep, and he's like, No, no. Just the sun. Just the light, just the warmth. When the sun is gone, you are in the cold darkness without anything, and you weep for me. You weep for me, and I'm not there. And then the Ramesses come along, and they're like, no, no, back to light and dark. We're everything. And the Ramesses really jump into that and and make it their touchstone 
it's not going to last, but you could argue that's the kind of stuff that moves into the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that light everywhere. and dark yeah. reaction to Akhenaten's very well, and the dark pure solar something like evil and bad, mm-hmm. and you know, this good yeah. and bad, dark and light, and monotheism incarnate. Mm-hmm. So, but th- there's much more we could do with that. But it's a it's a super interesting question. So then, their second part of the question is also, what is the association between the silver disc and the scarab beetle? Because I've seen several artistic representations of the scarab beetle pushing the solar disc. And so just looking. That's a, that's a good one. So like it's when, wonderful. You know, a scarab beetle, an actual scarab beetle, pushes its little ball of dung. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like a solar disc. Yeah. You know, it looks like the sun. The, so and the fact like, that it's a ball of shit means the Egyptians <laughs> understood the sun disc to not be a disc, but to be a globe. A globe, yeah. They knew it was round. They knew it mm-hmm. spun around. So yeah, so it's yeah. the it's the trope or the metaphor being it's you know the scarab beetle pushing the sun disk is like across the sky in its daily journey is like it's you know what scarab beetles do in real life where they push the little ball of dung. But it's also like, did you grow up Roman Catholic? Kind of. Kind of. Not as much as me. No. Like I had to do the catechism no. and all the crazy. I was shit. baptized. That was it. Okay. And then I so escaped. you know all the all the things that I was taught about. <laughs> how Jesus can get into the bread and yes. you ingest uh-huh. the bread and how Jesus can exist as the Holy wine Spirit, the Son, and Oof. God the Father at the same time, yeah. be wine and blood. I and asked all. too many yes. questions about that stuff. Yeah. I was and like, you, this does not make sense. And when you ask too many questions, they tell you it is a mystery. Yeah, they're like, it's not for us it to is, understand. It is not meant for you to under to be, it is not meant to be understandable. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that the the newborn son pushes along his afternoon self yeah. is the mystery of him. And Hepper being the god of, to Hepper something means to create, to beget, to, yes. to come into being. He is creating that which he will become. Mm-hmm. And that is a mystery. And if you look at the Amduat, within the very first hour, you see the Hepper beetle pulling the tow rope that in the hours of the night yeah. that will create his own rebirth at dawn. But Hepper is also the solar, Hepri is a solar deity yeah. linked with all these things too. But to have him pushing his own future self yeah. is wonderful. Mm-hmm. It would be like, it's a silly it's like analogy, fates. but did you ever, did they ever make you write a letter when you were yeah. like in the second to grade? To your future self exactly. in like sixth grade, yeah. And you're like, what would you're you like, tell your future you self? <laughs> That's what I wrote. <laughs> really? Yeah. I like, did you ever have a boyfriend yet? Oh my God. But this, are you I, popular? this idea that you are what you will become mm-hmm. is is really cool. So the and and what you don't know or what you may know is the answer the person who's asked this question is that for the Egyptians, the sun in this desert landscape where they have the river creating the largest oasis on oh. the planet, is that there are myriad ways of talking about the solar entity as many ways as people of the Pacific Northwest have to talk about snow and rain. Right. So you've got, you can say it's like, you know, a beetle rolling its dung across the desert. But the beetle rolling its dung is the mystery. Mm -hmm. That's the mystery incarnate. It's the newborn with its future manifestation in one being, in one being. The beetle comes out of its little hole, lays its eggs in the dung. And then out from that being comes more little scarabs. And it's the constant Beatles. cycle of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then why, why you have this concept of Ra, 
ray raw however you're supposed to pronounce it got the i in so it's like a raw kind of sound who knows i i don't even know how we could vocalize that but the raw element is like an abstract idea of sun Mm -hmm. that akhenaten allowed even in conjunction with the idea of aten the actual sun versus like the sun god and so there'll be a guy whose tomb is called mary raw and there's nothing wrong with that exactly beloved Beloved of the sun and the like Aten being the disc. The Aten is, I would call it the globe. The mm-hmm. Aten is just the physical sun, the sun that rises and sets, that puts warmth on your body. Mm-hmm. That's what the Aten is. And then Ra is the sun is like an abstract concept. Mm-hmm. Hepri is newborn sun. Yeah. Ra is usually noonday sun. Yeah, like high, high noon. Atum is evening sun. Why it's a ram? It's a ram headed god. What's going on there? But that's the old sun that's going to set in the heavens. It's and then there's, then there's the litany of Ray. Mm-hmm. 75 different manifestations written out. Some male-oriented, mm-hmm. some female-oriented, some with no real gender assigned. Some yeah. are really weird looking. And some are more chthonic, underworldish. Yeah. Some are more solar in the sky. But those 75 manifestations of the sun are in the Egyptian mindset, the mystery of how the sun can be everything oh. at all times. And, and even, it disappears every day and comes back up every day. Or morning. can even shine when it's night. Mm-hmm. When it's pitch black and there's no light, the sun is still there. Mm-hmm. Somehow, how? Yeah. How? Where is it? Yeah. It's Where'd there. It yeah. It's inside of the sky. Yeah. And it. You yeah. date it. It's just there waiting. It's it is in utero, yeah. waiting to come out. So this, at night, the sun is just there waiting to manifest. Mm-hmm. That's it. Going through it every, in the cyclical journey. Yeah. So, so it's super fucking cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and there's no great answer to your question, but there's so many different ways of understanding the sun. Yeah. And the Egyptians wrote myriad books about this. And there's not yeah, one way of, uh, just one way of understanding. No. Almond Ra's syncretism and yeah. how it works and, and one changes last, across time. One last yeah. thing I'll say yeah. is that the coolest part about what we have preserved mm-hmm. from ancient Egypt is that we have so much more of the chthonic underworld preserved than we do of the because daily of life, right? Funerary. Yeah, so that that's what you actually get in the desert spaces preserved. So you get this idea of how to continue the sun and how humans are part of the continuance of the sun mm-hmm. through the 12 hours of night. And it's not that the 12 hours of the day aren't important, but at that point, the sun is strong. So you can learn more about how solar ideology works by looking at its death yep. than by looking at well, its and life. It's like the same death that you have to go through. Yeah. And it has to fight through these all these gates and everything and that you will have to one day yeah. also do. So when the so Egyptian when people it, and it comes back every day, so you're like, oh, I too can live again like the sun right. every every day, every morning. And when people are like, oh my god, the Egyptians are obsessed with death. Well, yeah, they are, and this, this is a life. wonderful case in point. Death. <laughs> that to understand how the sun works, you have to perhaps start with its death, and then you can understand what its life mm-hmm. is about. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how you'll understand the manifestations of the sun, the different ways it's depicted the different words and monikers mm-hmm. that it's received and and understand that the Egyptians are really just trying to understand something that they're very grateful for and but they want to help along mm-hmm. and they want to connect with yeah they yeah. don't want it to stop <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no long-term eclipse Mm-mm. 
Okay. Eclipses so, are there, probably. Bad, scary. Yeah, Book of Earth, Book of Caverns. There's got to be eclipses mentioned in some way, but I don't know if we found it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah. Lexi asks, Lexi. so piggy, piggybacking off the solar theme, uh, the Old Kingdom popularized building obelisks since it was connected to the cult of the sun. Why did the building of obelisks diminish after that period excluding intermediate periods one and two i know that they didn't stop entirely building them but their popularity never recovered was it kind of like pyramids and that became too big and expensive i would argue that the height of obelisks would be the 18th dynasty well it's a different kind of thing isn't it and i mean let me be clear i've never worked at abu Ghraib, and yeah. i don't know what those fifth dynasty sun temples oh, yeah, the sun are like temples, but they're like little squat but but there are but there are obelisks built out of like masonry ben stones. The Ben Ben stones that are built there in the center of that yes. courtyard. How that has been reconstructed to be an obelisk like shape, I'm no architect. I don't know what it's the, the stones same with look like. Temple, like what was in the middle. Yeah. Right. Whether it, it was a mound, was it a Ben Ben? Exactly. Was it an obelisk like or nothing? But for Abu Ghraib, Architects seem very convinced that, that it was an obelisk-type obelisk type shape but there weren't that was there in the middle. Like Hatshepsut. No, there obelisks. was no monolith. Yes. It was masonry built. So it was an obelisk of many different pieces of stone yeah. put together. And then you get an obelisk-type shape yeah. that was what? A couple stories high. Yeah. There in the middle of a temple and people would look at it. And and so you, you have this obelisk-type shape but but in answer to Lexi's question I mean the first answer and you've already mentioned it Jordan is the Ben Ben stone yeah which is the stone of creation or the mound of creation the idea that goes back to that you know at the time of creation out of the primordial gooey waters a mound a Ben Ben uh, you know little obelisk shaped mound type thing and Rose. it's mentioned in all kinds of texts. I think the Ben Ben is and in the, the pyramid text. Yeah. Amber, will you look and see if the Ben Ben is mentioned in the pyramid text? I know it's cold, um, but like, I think it is. I think it, I'm sure it is. I think it is. But the Ben Ben stone. I mean, well, what do you think the Ben Ben stone is? I'm not trying to like interrogate like you. Like what it but. actually is. But yeah. Just, don't I know. think it's just like the first land, the Mound of Creation. Mound of Creation, which would be like you're in this watery landscape and of like pre-creation. Into existence comes... This mound of land that rises phallically from the waters. You can build palaces, you can put people... And you know, similar to like the indigenous, like, you know, turtleback out of the water instead of a turtleback being coming the lake land. Right. Where now we have this Ben Ben idea, this like mound of, I, I'm thinking too, like, you know, when we Egypt being a, a land of flood, yeah. you know, these gazeras yeah. that pop out of the water when it, it floods, you get these all these little mounds that are taller than the floodplain. And I'm thinking like, that's what. It's where you have some continuity. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise it's just going to reflood and reflood. And don't have to like move. <laughs> you can put a temple there. You yep. can put a palace there. You can put something there that's sacred. That invisible, last. higher ground. And it's a place where the sun will always touch, yep. which is where Ben Ben comes from, from Weben uh, to shine. Yep. And so there's light always which on this gets, place. And that's like the whole idea too behind like pyramids and all these things mm -hmm. that they're similar in this, you know, sense. That the pyramid pyramids. is the mound of earth. Um, so I'll say that 
the Benben stone itself, Egyptologists talk about this all the time. What was the first Benben stone? Where is it from? Most say that the, well, there's text that tells that the Benben was at Heliopolis Temple mm -hmm. and that it was a sacred stone. Mm -hmm. It was very important and that it was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's like almost like a Umphalos, like the one at Delphi, like the, like the um, um, belly button of the world. Or like the Kaaba at Mecca. Yeah, exactly. Like what's inside that box? Mm -hmm. What is it? A meteorite. Yeah. And many people say that the Ben Ben stone was a meteorite. Yeah. That it fell stone. from the heavens. And that the it was then. mint. Yes. And then was kept in Heliopolis temple. And it had a particular shape. And that shape for the Egyptians was replicative of yeah. solar rays and the way the solar rays hit the earth. And I would suggest, though I've got nothing to prove it, given the way that Sneferu wanted to build his first mm -hmm. pyramid, that the, that Stopped. that Ben-Ben stone at Heliopolis was about 60 degrees in angle. Oh, you think like it was on the I don't little... think it was stepped. I think it was straight-sided. I think that's what they were trying oh, to replicate. trying to get to it. That when Djoser built a stepped one, he's trying to build the ladder to the sky. But then Sneferu, when he tries to build the first straight-sided pyramid, he gives it three goddamn tries. Yeah. No small thing. And that he tries to build it higher mm -hmm. at Maydoom and the Bent Pyramid, about 60 degrees. Yeah. And then he gives up. He's like, fine, wah, wah, I'll do my 45 <laughs> degrees. Yeah. And then Khufu is like, okay, I can do it, Dad. And he can only get 54. He can't quite get yep. there. Too steep. And, but then when you see Akhenaten, you see when he depicts the Aten in They're the sky. Steeper. It's so steep. Yeah, it's more like the like Meroitic Nubian ones. It is, mm -hmm. and th exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then when you go to but Nubia and they resurrect this thing, and let's assume that Ben Ben Stone is still in Heliopolis when they're building this, because this temple has been continuous operation, mm -hmm. Akhenaten years accepted. Yep. That they're looking at this and they're like, oh yeah, this is like sixty-five degrees in angle, and this is what we're going to build in Nubia. This is what Taharka is going to have. This is what all the other kings mm -hmm. are going to have, and. It, I would say that it's like this stone with some sort of, not point, but some sort of angle of 60 to 65 degrees that shows what the Egyptians understood as how light hit the earth. Mm. So I would argue that the obelisk as represented at Abu Ghraib sun temples of the Old Kingdom is a manifestation in stone of how light hits the earth, what mm. angle, mm -hmm. what it's like. What it from a human perspective, yeah. Yeah. Optics, angles, light bending. Mm -hmm. How does this work? But so we do get like periods of where obelisks are seemingly more popular or we have more of mm -hmm. them built, right? We think of maybe Hatshepsut T3 and then we think of Ramses. Well, there's Simbazret the first of 12th uh, sure, dynasty at Heliopolis, yeah. right? Simbazret. Yeah, that's the first monolithic mm -hmm. one that we know of. Yeah. So I'm trying to go through the ones that were all taken out of Egypt. And then was the first. Was the first. Um, Hatshepsut after that. Or, two, or T2, and then she takes it, yeah. right? T3, T3, of course, was the third. Um, and then after him? There's not. And then Ramses? Ramses, certainly. But, like, but other it. 18th Dynasty, I don't know how much there is. But so, like, do we think they... Amenhotep the third. Oh, my God, Amenhotep the third. And then his obelisk probably at... He, he has obelisks that were probably taken by oh, Ramses. Okay. So, so Ramses and reuse, yeah. right, Kylie? Um, yeah. Wouldn't that be a fun research project? How many obelisks did Ramses II reuse from Amenhotep uh, III? All of Fucking them. all of them? Probably. <laughs> That's what I'm going with. And to prove that would be awesome. But 
anyway, and then the one that's still in the ground at the yes. granodiorite quarries that at practice. Aswan is probably Amenhotep the third. Yes. Yeah. So do we think? Why did they stop? I mean, or why did certain kings maybe not pursue having one? It's what does really it mean to have to an do. obelisk? It's hard to carve. I mean, that's what that one they were going for. They were going for home, yeah. and that thing cracked, and then they were like, yeah. "Well, fuck." Like we're now like uh, we spent all this time trying to carve this granite, giant granite thing out of the ground, and it cracked, and it's a lot because of time. Because building an obelisk like that, and then putting it up and erecting it, and when, getting it to stand. When you create a monolithic obelisk, you are essentially trying to create a sunbeam in stone, mm -hmm. and you want it to be multiple stories high. Yeah, five, six, seven stories high, maybe ten stories high, which is the one in Aswan. Yeah arguably, and you want it to be perfect, no yeah. cracks, no anything. And it's meant to be when you set it up like a miracle. Mm -hmm. It's meant to be it something is. like, imagine when the Great Pyramid is going up on the Giza Plateau. Massive. And, yeah, and people are working in Memphis, going about their shitty scribal yeah, jobs. Like your one-story house, that's or, the only thing you've ever seen. <laughs> or tanning your leather, yeah, or whatever it like, is you're doing. And you see that going up over your whole lifetime. Yeah. And you still think it's a miracle you can't understand. Yeah. That's what the obelisk is supposed to be. It's supposed to be something you, you look up and you up see. And the light hits the top and you're like, that's ah, covered blinded. with gold. Yeah, and you're like, the gold, it's like, it. okay. But yeah. like, how did they create that one shaft? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's phallic. Yes, it's patriarchal. Oh, yeah. Of stone without cracking mm -hmm. it. It's meant to be a motherfucking miracle. Yeah. And if they can pull it off, then you believe. Yeah. And so the answer so to the question like is... in times of great prosperity. Yes. So, right, like Tatsashi T3, yes. A3, like times where they have a lot of works going on. They have a lot of crews. Those who can engage in research and, and development. Yeah. And all At the same time when we have the most tombs, the most noble's tombs yeah. is when we have the most obvious. It's the same time when you are really good for... <laughs> The elites. <laughs> but also when you have, there are times in a lot of human bureaucracy. history when we have time for creativity. Mm -hmm. Now is not one of those like the times. Do we have time for creativity? No. no. When, <laughs> people, when people build stuff, like say they're building a great capital. Yeah, we're, for not, gonna instance, get, we're not gonna get like, like beautiful concert halls. We're not like, gonna build new things. We're not gonna build new freeways. We're not building to, like, new structures. We're not building new bridges. We're just trying to have water. And electricity we're trying to survive and when people build grandiose shit like, they're repeating <sighs> shitty things that everyone looks at and they'll look at in 10 years and go oh wait it's already falling apart uh -huh. and it's so yep. it's so redundant it's already been or done you say, oh, you're wasting money on that when we have real problems we exactly. should be worried about and so i would say this is not a time period of extraordinary creativity to try and fail mm -hmm. because if you're going to build an obelisk you're going to fail a bunch of times. Yeah. Well, I and did. You have to have How many cracked obelisks were there. Yeah, <laughs> probably in. Hmm? Yeah, you have to have one. the. You have to be okay with it maybe failing and still being able to take that loss. You have to have a lot of hoarded goods to yeah. be able. You have to, to, fail. to be able to take a loss and not be bothered by it. And right now we don't have any hoarded goods. No. We're like no all losses. at the edge of our like every like Southwest Airlines, right? <laughs> or. You know, that one little late flight and the whole thing Rainbow. falls apart yeah. because they've got it all pushed like to the, the like, absolute like the end. supply chain. Yes. Issues. One little supply right. no chain eggs. issue. One avian flu. No, no toilet eggs. paper. <laughs> no toilet paper. All of these things. So, so this is the world we live in now. It's it's in the the highest percentage of efficiency 
um, failure rate. And if we just go beyond that, it's all done. It's all done. Yeah, we're not being extravagant and extra right now. No, No, no extra. So it has to be a time period of extra training extra trying, extra creativity. Well, and I think to Lexi's point here is that, you know, once people started making them big, you want to make one bigger and you keep going, right? So the one, the failed one we have still in C2, it's, it was too big yeah. and it cracked. And yeah. people, you know, you don't want to make up obelisk and then have it be smaller than all the other ones. But that you want was to keep, the last one too. You want to keep but, going, that's what I'm saying. You want to keep, same with the pyramids. You yeah. keep trying to make bigger and bigger and bigger. You want to make a pyramid. Kind of. But as so soon like if as, you can't make it bigger, then you just drop it? Yes, that's what you, not, do you don't just drop it, but you'd drop the R&D. So as soon as yeah. Khufu's pyramid was built, research and development was dead. They weren't going like, to try for anything awesome and yeah. cool anymore. They were just going to replicate what had already been built yep. and redo it and redo it until it had run out its clock. Yep. And that clock would be run out at the end of the 13th dynasty. Mm-hmm. No more pyramids after that. And they will be resuscitated again in the 25th dynasty. Yeah. And that's the next time. So it's a, it's it's just really just like interesting. We resuscitated obelisks like our Washington Monument. They came back. Yeah. Certain point. Mason rebuilt though, not, yeah. a, not yeah. a monolith. Yeah. But it's an interesting thing to see how you have the moon, the shot to the moon. Yeah. And you have all of the research and development that goes into yeah. it. You get to the moon. Getting to this on, You pinnacle. put, you know, one small step for man, one great leap for mankind. He walks on the moon. Everything after that was a replication like, of what they yeah. had done, yeah. including like, Apollo 13, mm-hmm. which is like bring them back home, yes. you know, replications of what they had done. And now we just replicate. And even when we send things to Mars, it's like, here's the shitty ass well, robot say, that we, we built on Mars? a shoestring. Why are string? we spending all this money? Like there's people starving. Like I don't even want to go to Mars. But, pe- but then like, people like my father will say yeah. like well it's the whole going there that's the thing it will create all this new technology that will be useful for other things and yeah. blah 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 like okay but... i mean as for um techno billionaires going to mars that's its own discussion mm-hmm. how much r&d is going into that what about spacex what about all of these different that that's a that's a decentralized yeah. elite based not nationalistic run sort of sort of push Mm -hmm. so i'm not saying there's no r&d um at all but it's um who's benefiting from it and how i don't know it's just a it's it's a different it's a different discussion so yeah all right so we have our next question is about what our tut episode which we i think i brought up that i looked through the zahi hawas um like DNA article, and I said that all of them had cleft palates and club feet and stuff like this. <laughs> so it's in reference to those. Do they really all have cleft palates? Most of them and... have cleft palates. I mean, and... sorry, cleft palates and club feet? Yeah, a lot of them do. Wow. Of the 18th dynasty royal yeah, family, yeah. men and women. Yeah. Like, most of them have cleft palates. But I don't know, not being a geneticist nor a person who specializes in cleft palates, I don't know, like, if there's degrees of having a cleft there are palate. there are so like perhaps they weren't like you can have an arch palate bad, you can have an like not actual, like quote unquote like noticeable no sometimes other... there's an actual opening up yeah, to your sinus it's like cavity open here yeah and, and your snot like, collects yeah. in your palate so i don't know like when they say cleft palate i don't know what that like means i don't know right either. it can be on i don't this, either it can be on the spectrum of or yeah, same with scoliosis like you can have scoliosis where you're like richard the third like you know humpbacked scoliosis or i have scoliosis where like i, I have scoliosis we all you know so like what is the scoliosis is it extreme is yeah. it like you know manageable so what, what these i got on the pilates machine and i grew so two good. inches so yeah. i can tell you that that happened did you grow 
from Pilates? I don't know. I haven't measured myself. You didn't measure yourself after? My back felt better. Yeah. Like, it definitely helps my back. But I don't don't know if I, like, grew. I grew. So Cleo Theban Sphinx. Wait, say that again. Cleo Theban Sphinx. Cleo Theban Sphinx. Yes. Everyone has fun little handles. Okay. Okay. There is no Cleopatra Theban Sphinx, but that's fine. That's true. (laughs) In the internet world, there is. (laughs) If all the Tut-related royals are running around in the 18th dynasty with cleft palates... And club feet. And club feet. Let's let them run around in our minds. Thank you. Okay, so let's pretend. Yes. How did they explain these, you know, disabilities, deformities to the citizens slash the public? I mean, yeah, they could have claimed them as blessings from the gods slash Aten, but surely the public masses could see these things. Would they really have believed these deformities as blessings, especially since the royals had to be in some level of recognizable pain? Again, I think this is part of the, we don't know how, you don't know how bad on it was. the spectrum no. these things were, no. if they were even noticeable. Scoliosis would eventually become debilitating, depending again how bad the, the um, curvature is. You can't speak or eat properly with a cleft palate. Again, I don't know, we'd have to ask a dentist. Notice, you can not speak with a cleft palate, even a pretty bad one. And I, maybe not a cleft palate that splits your yeah. your mouth at the lip, but that's a hair lip There's, and a different yes, thing. Yeah, different so, degrees of... But cleft palate, you can speak. Yeah. But, but the point here being, you know, none of the tomb art shows any of these things. Yeah. So the words clearly didn't didn't want to, you know, make light of these things, right? They didn't want to include them in their tomb art, didn't see those quote-unquote beautiful or whatever... Um, so they're wondering also about, you know, incest, right? So like, would they have looked different, you know, animals who are often the results of incest often have, you know, look strange, like all the, uh, um, pumas, pumas around us. Yeah, pugs. <laughs> yeah, she mentions, or they mentioned bulging eyes, right? Like all yeah. the, the, um, ones you can't mountain breathe lions by us that don't have like, mm-hmm. their tails are really short mm-hmm. and they're like really small because they're all like incestual. So just, you know, how did they maybe rationalize or explain or deal with possible and i think this is a question like beyond the you know 18th dynasty royal family but anytime maybe a royal would have something that was beyond the you know heteronormative you know they were really short or um fat and not you know the typical like super muscular handsome king if they had any type of um you know disability or you know, was born without you know, an arm or something. I know these things happen, right? Like, yeah, these disabilities. Um, so how well, would we they... Just, we just posted about this in the Substack, mm-hmm. right? And we just talked about how in uh, Greece, it was Greece, right? Minoan Crete. Minoan yes. Crete. Minoan Crete. That there was a preponderance for incestuous relationships. Yes, endogamous consanguinity. Endogamous consanguinity. A.K.A. you're fucking your cousin. <laughs> <laughs> That's the nice way of saying you're fucking your cousin. At, at which point the scholars conclude that it's all to keep the land and the family. Mm-hmm. It means that, and and this was starting at the Neolithic yeah. and yeah, going into the a, Iron Age. Hundred skeletons from yeah, like Neolithic through Iron Age. So this is something that, and then what did I put in there that <laughs> that capitalism doesn't make you healthy. <laughs> Like right, <laughs> which is true. Yeah, and so I think that well, first of all, the they're asking, well, didn't the populace care? 
Well, and I'll, I would counter with who the fuck are the populists? Well, that, who the, what do they have to say about anything? Nothing. Yeah. And I think we can take a lot of like lessons and um, case studies with like more European monarchies, more close in time where we have people who are maybe unfit to rule because they're, you know, too young or not too crazy, capable or something like this. Or have disabilities. And people are like, it doesn't matter because like he has the bloodline, yep. shove him in the role and then someone else will actually be ruling on their behalf. And like the populace isn't going like, oh, what's his face the Habsburg draw guy like yeah. no one's saying like oh Charles he's actually II. really ugly yeah. like are we concerned yeah and then there comes a point yeah, where Charles, yeah. as incest in ruling groups whether family's trying to keep land in the family it becomes it becomes normal popular yeah popular it becomes like something the Habsburg draw that is associated putting in their portraits it's associated with it. power where you look at it and you immediately see ah that person is of this family mm -hmm. there is a windsor look or something yeah. right there's a windsor look yeah. or there's a this there's a you know a, a royal all family blue-eyed and pale or they all have hemophilia yeah, or whatever exactly. yep. which means that you can create an ideology mm -hmm. that states that God has touched your body and that God has made your body extra sensitive, extra special, extra recognizable. Yeah, I can't touch the ground. I'm too... There are ways of using this vis-a-vis -vis the populace or lower elites or high-level elites but... in which you say that these people are different than other people and their club feet set them apart and that they need to be surrounded by the strong ones who can fight in a different way. But these are, they're different. They're set aside for a different kind and of task. And then the art not showing such realities. They're idealized in the this world and the next. They're idealized by the gods. They yeah. are a god. They are a god. Mm -hmm. And when you claim that the reason you rule is because of your divine bloodline, who the hell cares if you have a club foot? doesn't matter. Yeah, it's almost like you're your like blessed curse or something like I'm you know the king but I have this affliction or something that I have to like the burden I have to bear being king you know it's an interesting thing that we and only all people, like I mean they're always shown as perfect they age yeah. you never see an aged king you arguably. see like so watching like, the never, third you yes. might see an aged king in face but not in but, body like, you always see they're always ripped like you never see a fat aged king which is probably how most of them ended up looking so like they didn't ever show anything but perfection. It's a really cool thing, in my opinion, that it's around the third and fourth dynasties that you start to see the dwarf, mm -hmm. which is somebody with a, a little person with yeah. a genetic predisposition to a small stature, mm -hmm. really prized as an important people, part of society. Always like even at Hierocompolis, that one grave, it's a little person surrounded by all of, like these animal, like very exotic, you know, wealthy luxury animals and you would so you as king would then bring a dwarf into your midst and say this person is special their body is touched by the gods mm -hmm. maybe you as a king in the second dynasty is a product of incest or the third dynasty is a product of incest with your own body touched mm -hmm. by certain maladies that everyone can see but you're saying that this this person born in this particular way is special and i myself it's a way of saying indirectly that I myself am also special. Yeah. I think your point about being like, in a way becomes the new normal, mm -hmm. right? So if all the 1890s walking around with crooked backs and limps and whatever, then it's, but if that's, that's the royal family, then 
probably all the elites are like, wait, I want a crooked back and a limp and wait, yeah. I want to look like I'm, I fit in too. And another example would be Amenhotep I and his mother, Ahmes Nefertari, mm-hmm. 18th dynasty. Amenhotep I is arguably the product of two generations yeah. of full brother-sister incest. Kids. Full brother-sister incest, two generations. He has no children. No. He can't bear children. There, there may be children that he bore that died early and there are temples <clears> built <throat> to them. Mm-hmm. It's arguable. But we have to bring in Tutmos the first. Yeah, you got to get an outside person. And Ahmed's Nefertari comes in and she helps and other people help. And I wrote a whole book on this called The, the Woman Who Would Be King. That's fine. But like... He is divinized as a super human, badass ancestor king of the entire 18th dynasty. Mm. And his genetic lineage lineage is nowhere in the rest of the 18th dynasty. He's not in Tutmos the first. He's not in Tutmos the second. He's not in Tutmos the third. He's not in. I mean, it's crazy. But he's the guy with all of his genetic abnormalities. Mm -hmm. That's the special one with his mama. No children. And they're like, we love you. We mm-hmm. love you. And so there's this idea of marking somebody out as being Just different different and special and in touched by way, God. Yeah. So I would be careful at looking at, at looking Projecting at. like our opinions yes. about things. Yes. Back on. Like, and so, saying, you know. oh, that cleft palate is a problem. You can't speak properly. Let's say the cleft palate does make it so you can't speak properly. And let's say all of the 18th dynasty by a certain point were talking in a weird way. Well, then everyone was going to copy. Yeah. They're going to copy like, that oh, weird way. Now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. They're going to be like, oh, speak like this because the king speaks like this. And, and then everyone will be speaking mm-hmm. like that. Um, I know I just sounded like Carter in, um, what's it called? Um, <laughs> South Park. <laughs> Park. Thank you. But, but yes. I did a little Carter. But like, yeah, we, yeah, we all create. If you're the person in power, you can make anything popular. You can make anything popular. It can popular. be literally, Absolutely. you know, you think about like what fads come through and, yeah. you know, yeah. if you're in power, you can... So we should not project our, uh, like, even, like, the word, def- I had, like, I was, like, struggling even saying, like, the word deformity, because I'm, like, yeah. I don't want to, like, that's our view of things. and Or our ableism. Our ableism. You're yeah. Right, like, we don't, I don't want to project onto them, like, what they viewed as a deformity and what they didn't view as that way. Right. Um, and and just what... differently abled in the sense. And, like, I think that's maybe a better term, differently abled and blessed by the gods or... Yeah. Or this idea of having blue eyes and white skin, mm-hmm. which in most of the world is not very functional. It's not good. It gives a skin cancer. Yeah. And it's a huge problem. And yet people in India where the sun is quite fierce will buy bleaching agents mm-hmm. to make their skin lighter because it connects you with the higher caste. <laughs> it's colonialism. It's the Aryan invasion in 1000 AD yeah. and or BC. BC. And it's, it's insane that... People would do things that are bad for them yes physically because of fads and culture or because of power, power and the and perceptions and yes. optics of power yeah you'll yes. do something that's bad for you yeah no. so being tall ain't all that i know this as somebody who's over six feet and it's it's not great but it gives do you, see you the new new york times article about this I live is, shorter this is the year of the short yeah, like, it's, it's way the best time to be short. Way more efficient. I saw it and I thought of you. Way more efficient as a human body. It's just. But being tall is still prized. Uh, yeah, I guess. I know you don't feel maybe that way, but it no. is like being tall is still like a cultural, has cultural money. Yeah, and so and being I, short. I'll just I'll just end it on one end this question on one thing that like if there's a weird snaggle tooth or a weird like 
hair color or a weird like we all have one eye of a different color that kind of thing is going to be hot as shit yeah it's going to be like i want to be like that and how they didn't have hair dye and yeah plastic surgery back then they probably all looked very so if someone actually like was born different looking it's a way of saying the gods have marked me yeah You've been marked by the gods for like power. Like being albino or Go something. Go for it. It was like, yeah. people probably like, whoa, what? Like, yeah. something's interesting here. But yeah, and I also, I just think, going back to like, probably most of these things weren't to the most extreme when we think of any cleft palate, scoliosis, because they were still procreating, having kids and functioning. They yeah. we have their bodies. They live to like normal adulthood. I mean, so it's like a- they weren't. I don't think it was, you know, no, you to live till 40 and good, good on you extreme of yeah. like these things affecting their lives. I don't think they, you know, we have to, I think, you know, think of like a mild case of scoliosis, a mild case of. But if you're comparing to other parts of the world and say you're looking at Greek myths where people are exposing like infants or you're exposing infants for not being born in a perfect state, I would say that's an interesting research project and we can look in which you can look at societies that are more competitive less hierarchical pyramidally constructed socially and see if there's more ableism in that society and less interest in a an incestuously created unusual body that is considered special and touched by the gods they're going to take care of you because you have the bloodline. Yeah, so of whereas, like we were just saying with like hemophilia and stuff, like maybe if you were just, if you were like a peasant with hemophilia, you're probably fucked. But like if you're the crown prince and you have hemophilia, you're probably okay because like you're the crown prince. Until you get gunned down by the communists. And, until they come for you, yeah. But it wasn't the hemophilia that got <laughs> No, it wasn't. It was not, not the, the hemophilia, hemophilia that got him. Bloodline. Yes, it was. Right? So like yeah. if you're of the royal blood, you could probably, they'll keep you. Yeah. And like nothing will happen because yeah. you're of the royal blood and you're worth more to them, even with your differently abled self, perhaps. But and, and the Egyptians knew that incest was problematic, just like wow. everyone on this planet knew that incest is problematic for too Seems long like a period cannibalism. of time. Um, and up the first didn't have any kids. Mm-hmm. They have to bring in a new guy. They might marry him to some chick who is connected to the old family. Great. But. He still has to start this new bloodline with new healthy genetics. Eventually, it will be bad. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to then, there, there are times in Egyptian history when the king's marrying his sisters all the time. And then they start to go, There's, oh, wait, no, no, no. Let's bring in some new fresh yeah. blood, literally. And and then you see a pushback against the incest. So these things come and Where go. Where you see the like chief wife is a sister, but the one who becomes king next is from a secondary wife. Which tre- which tells probably us kids from that lady, the first wife was probably not very like strong and healthy kids. Yeah, it proves so that fashion is power, and power is fashion. So when people change from something. And it's no longer fashionable. It's because it's not powerful anymore. It's not serving them in any way. Yes. And it's the same with culottes and fucking miniskirts. If you're moving away from something, it's not powerful anymore for whatever reason. You need a reaction. Mm -hmm. And and that means that even breeding of humans can be fashionable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Who who you're breeding with. Yeah. Write it up, Jordan. Yeah. Talk about body adornment. It's body. I would love that. Can you include a couple paragraphs on that? Mm-hmm. I love that. Who you're, who, who you're choosing to? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's brother like people, sister is going like to create a certain when body. People go, you know, people want to have like a sperm donor or something, and you get to like select. Yeah. Who the sperm donor is? Like, oh, he's six four, 
blonde, blue eyed, and you're like, perfect. That's like, I want my kids to have like those genes in them. But in the 18th dynasty, son of Amenhotep II, and he's born with a club foot, they're like, perfect. Yes. Amen Ray has chosen him. And he's one of us. Maybe. Yeah. We don't that know. That he's an 18th dynasty. We're talking kid. about a harem selection of the next crown prince. We do not know. Yeah. He's not walking around doing much. No. <laughs> He's good. Tutankhamun had his canes. Everything's yeah. fine. It's fashionable. Yeah. Yeah. He made canes fashionable. Everyone probably was like, oh, I have to have a cane now. Get your canes out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Our next question, similar actually in relation to this, um, is did the masses ever really see pharaohs in the flesh in the way that wasn't so stage managed that they would have noticed, you know, these imperfections perhaps? You know, seen at a far distance from the window of appearances, it would have been very straightforward to stage manage the stunning look. And and Brian, um, is Brian asking this? No. Yeah. So our Brian mentioned Brian yeah. commented on the question and said how they would overlook these things. And then someone else mentions, yeah, like FDR, yeah. right? Like how he was. They had to hide that he had polio. Mm -hmm. um, and they would prop him up places and tie that he had a wheelchair and he had, you know, his legs all braced and had to walk places and hide. But They'd often put him behind a car. Put him behind and he'd a car. drive around. Yeah. You know, behind a desk, sitting things. Who asked the question? Um, far pointer. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that. But so the king is coming up to a window of appearances. And oh, that's yeah. only for the elite still. That's yeah. not for like the average person. So it's, again, for the elites, the elites probably would have known still, but played along, perhaps. Well, yeah, because they're in his home. They're yeah, hanging out. They're really, eating with the guy. You know, Ramsey gets really old. He's maybe not going to be able to, like, perform all his, you know, he's not running across doing the headset anymore if he's, like, 90. Mm -mm. He's not doing any running, but they have to, like, keep up appearances that these rituals are performing. Well, and you and... see some of these rituals, Jordan. You're like, you've got to hold like a couple flapping geese in yeah. one hand and then two oars like in the other and, and run. Like Biden like doing this, <laughs> you know? So, well, I mean, Biden can still run. He can still ride a bike. But, you know, they're putting him in the right context at the right podia with the right speech notes and everything that he needs, the teleprompter. Yep. I mean, yeah, this was a stage manager. And if you couldn't be. perform something, it would be like, oh, the crown prince is going to do it for me. Yeah. Or like someone else is going to be my like proxy stand in yeah. or something. And it was okay. Yeah. But and I if don't things think you got ever really. like seeing the king. If things got really bad, you'd put somebody away. Yeah. I think. And, and bring in a regent of some kind. You'd have a co regency or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or the yeah. queen would take over. I would say it's you know? the same as if you have a two-year-old king. Mm -hmm. You can't have the two-year-old king. Two Maybe it's not cute. Like... Maybe it's cute to have the king running around with the oars and dragging them across yeah, the floor. And he's not listening and he's in there like having a tantrum and you're like, ah, like in the temple and he's like, ah, I want more milk. <laughs> like, what do you do if the, the king's having a tantrum? And you're like, and then the priest just is like, all right, finish the ritual quickly and like go change his diaper or whatever. I don't know. Like, what do you do? I mean, in, in response to this question, the first thing I would always say is the commoners don't matter. They don't see him probably ever. Who has the power? It's the elites and the king. That could be low elites, middle elites, high elites, but it's the elites and the king. That's where the power is. And it's not until you have an industry that you have a middle class with power. Yeah. And that's not until Ptolemaic Roman times that you have any sort of industry. So these normal people don't matter. Yeah. And every bit of triumphal preening or display is going to happen in a more exclusive setting than you can imagine. Mm -hmm. 
even if it's, let's say, the king is marching through the streets of Thebes for an Opet festival and everyone's there, the people lining the route are going to be the more important people. And you'll have a military there. You'll have all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. And there'll be aides and there'll be people waiting at the next stop. They'll, well, they'll be everything you can imagine. Thebes. Yeah. There's the whole rest of the country. Yeah. Like someone from like Middle Egypt, like, we're probably never going to ever even see the king. Maybe you see his like boat float down when he's going to Memphis. And you're like, oh, that's the king's like bark and all of his retinue and stuff. But and maybe you get a glimpse. It's like when we're here in L.A. and, yeah, we see and the, you see the motorcade. Yeah. And you're like, oh, it's Biden. Or the helicopters Kamala, go by. Yeah. And you're like, oh, damn, Marine Someone's, One has just yeah, gone by. But like, I've yeah. never. Exactly. But yeah. like to even a more nth degree where you don't even because we have TV and stuff. But like, I've never seen Biden. I just see him on the television. You know, but kingship is about pageantry. Yeah. It's about a display that is idealized and it cannot be anything else. It's a burden. It is. You know, it keeping is. up that. Putting on that crown, putting on that kilt. You don't ever get, you are dressing the king. You in that way. Maybe yeah. wearing makeup, doing yeah. all of these things, learning all of the rituals, learning what you need to know. Just read mm -mm. Prince Harry's book. Spare. Yeah. This is something you're born to and, and could be selected into last minute mm -hmm. with somebody's death or unexpected circumstances, but it's, it's something that is stage crafted. Yeah. So I wouldn't worry about like imperfections and people seeing those. Yeah. They would have either been dissuaded from seeing those. Like, I don't think anyone would be like, like elites, like snickering, like, uh -huh, like, look at the king. He's gotten a little fatter. I don't know. Maybe they said that on his back, but being fat was not a problem, but you know, but I think this question is also coming from our own political yeah. competition. Yeah, we're very concerned with like appearances and... And, you know, Marjorie like, Taylor Greene can't, though she curates herself very well, she can't curate everything. She doesn't have handlers watching her at every stage mm -hmm. of the game. She doesn't have a hundred people to help her through a parade. And so she's going to make mistakes. She's going to look like shit in certain pictures. She's going to fight with the other chick in the bathroom or whatever it is. And things are going to come out that are not according to an idealistic standard. No. But she's not a king or it's queen. Like this crown. is not. And when I say king, females can be kings in ancient Egypt. But this is she's not meant to be stagecrafted. And that's what we're used to. And we're always looking to that arena of competition mm -hmm. for authenticity. Because we don't, fake out democracy, don't view that mm -hmm. as something that's right. Yeah. We don't want that. We want people to be genuine. Yeah. Whatever that means. Yeah. We're not looking for this perfected, like, consolidated, long power. This is why as soon as you become president... You have to give up your social media, which Trump did not want to do, right? Yep. You have to dress in a certain way. Mm -hmm. You have to listen to your yeah, minders. Obama's tan suit, remember that? Yes. Go there ahead. are people all around telling you how to do your dinner, how to wake up in the morning, how to walk down the hallway. And it becomes much bigger it's than like you ever could watched, be. Um, if you watch Marie Antoinette with Kirsten Dunst. I love that And movie. it's just like this, like, from the literal moment of she opens her eyes, yeah. it's this, like, ritual upon ritual upon ritual upon yeah. ritual. And, like, I think most of us would be like, oh, my God, I'm, I would, like, want to run away and hide in the forest. But anybody who takes on that position of leader yeah. of state is no longer an individual. They the are the state. L'état c'est moi. Mm -hmm. You are the whole yep. state. So no, there is nothing that is They're not accidental. not looking at you as an individual at this mm -hmm. point. You are no. just the king. Yeah. 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 You are Egypt. 
Those are you all the questions. Sun. Yeah, you are the, the sun. sun. Exactly. Yeah. Well, those are all really great questions. Um, They're always great questions. Super cool. Good job, patrons. Yeah, thank you. Really very thoughtful. And we will see everyone next month for our next Patreon, Patreon, Patreon questions. Um, yeah. And what's our next topic? What are we talking about next? I don't know. I have to think of it. We shouldn't say anything. Yeah. So that <laughs> okay. Um, but great patron questions. Yes. We'll answer your patron questions again next month. Thank you. And um, yeah. And this is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Bye guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with others and leave us a five-star review. Send us your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the show notes in the podcast section of my website, karakuniegyptologist.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books and upcoming lectures. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter to keep up on the latest news and content from me. Check out the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off by subscribing to our Substack Afterlives After Party. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. See you next time on Afterlives with Karakuni.